0: Everybody, and welcome back to Mugwrax Act Movies, the show where we don't talk smack about movies, we celebrate them. And today, we are celebrating our favorite movies of 2017. What an occasion, folks. Finally, we released all of our backlog recordings that we recorded in 2017, and now finally we will recount our favorite movies from 2017. This was a podcast we recorded back in March of 2018 alongside our Oscars podcast. This was the second half of that recording that now you will get to listen to. And what an occasion. We released that Oscars podcast as episode 13 of among American movies. And this best movies of 2017 Marcus is episode 31. It's like the flip side of that. That's pretty cool. That's quite a coincidence, don't you think? But yes, in this episode of Among Merrick's Ad Movies, the final backlog recording we have yet to release, we talk about our top six favorite movies, each from 2017. That's 11 movies total. Why not 12 if it's two top sixes? That's because our number ones were the same movie. And, what do you think it was? What do you think both of our favorite movie from 2017 was? Well, you're just gonna have to listen and find out. But, until then, enjoy listening to our thoughts and what we thought were the best movies of 2017. Finally, out with the old, in with the new, starting off 2019, by clearing our slate, and, With this release, you'll have new recordings, new podcasts recorded in the year of 2019 to look forward to in the future. But, without further ado, let's listen to our countdown of the top movies of 2017. And see! Now we've talked about what the Oscars think are the best movies of the year, we are going to show them up and talk about what we think are the true best movies to come out of 2017. Won't we Elord? Lord? We will show the Oscars just how wrong they are and talk about the films we think are far superior to what they think are the best. The best. Yeah,
1: because our opinions are better. Of course they are, naturally. So should, uh, who
0: wants to start here? So, how are we going to do this? We're going to do a top six, because as it turns out, our number one happens to be the same film, and we decided, hey, why have one of us change what our number one is? Let's have that be the same thing, but then let's have a top six otherwise. You know, just to still have, like, ten unique entries between the two of us. Yeah. So... I guess you can start first if you want to. So I guess just to clarify again, this is going to go down the same as how we did it last year. We, Laura, and I each have a top five. They are all different films. And so, collectively these are our top ten favorite films of 2017. Top 11, technically, since our number one for this year is the same. And just like last year, we'll be going down, alternating between our, like, number sixes and then number fives, and, and working our way all the way down to number one. Sound good to you? Yeah. All right. So what's your number six,
1: V-Lord? Um. So my number, number six is Kizumonogatari Part 3. So... Whoa. 2017 was the year that I finally decided to sit down and start Monogatari. And, uh, Kizumonogatari had been hyped up for me quite a bit. And it it delivered completely. The third film, just on pure animation, it's a real mind-blowing spectacle. Like, the sheer amount of insane animation cuts in that film, outstanding. I'd highly suggest if you... Can like find a clip of Araragi versus Shinobu? Cause that that shit is off the hook. It's it's hilarious, insane, and all around is just a really fun film with a a really. I feel like it really it, it's a backstory film, really, for the Monogatari series, and really kind of makes you understand Ar- Araragi more as a character and Shinobu as well as a character. Overall, it just kind of further sold me on what Nisio Eason is capable as a writer, Shaft's, like, capabilities as a studio, and just what monogaptory can really offer beyond what you hear about the long monologues and word puns.
0: Ah, awesome. Yeah, I have not gotten into the Baka Monogatari franchise, or rather the Monogatari franchise, but I plan to one day, and I definitely heard that Kyuzu Monogatari was a pretty damn cool-looking film throughout a series of films, and I have seen some animation cuts from it and that look pretty dope, so I would like to watch that at some point. So what's your number six? Hmm, I had a hard time deciding what my number six should be, Because on my list of all the films i watched this year, it is one thing. But I feel pretty closely about it compared to some other films. But I'm going to go with The Breadwinner. Which was made by Cartoon Saloon, who also did Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea. And it was directed by Nora Twomey. Uh, and it's based on the best-selling novel by Deborah Ellis, which was, like, written in the early 2000s. And this film is, like, a really interesting look at the life of this young girl who is, you know, living in a Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. When her father is, like, arrested, she has to dress up as a boy in order to go out and earn money for their her family because her mother... And sister, they can't pass off as men because they are fully grown adult women. And women cannot, you know, roam the streets without a male companion. And they don't have, like, any male relatives that can, you know, take care of them. Except for, like, they they try to marry the sister off to some really bad guy. And some asshole cousin comes to pick them up that, like, uh, abuses them. And eventually, you know, they have to rebel against him and, like, escape from that. But ultimately, the main heroine, Parvana, she realizes, she's, you know, she dresses up as a boy and she discovers kind of the freedoms that allows her. And there are some, like, tough calls, some dangerous calls. But, you know, she meets another kindred spirit who is also uh, dressing up as a boy. And uh, they kind of get into some adventures and have to, you know, deal with, you know... Uh, discrimination and, you know, trying to take care of their families and desiring a better life. And I think what was the strongest aspect of this movie was this story that Parvana is telling to her baby brother that is about a young man going on this journey to retrieve some stolen seeds by, like, this evil king and whatever. And this whole story is like a parable of her working through her grief for the death of her older brother. And that's like revealed at the end. In like a really powerful way. When she's like crying out for her brother. When the main character of this story. Who up until this point is like deliberately unnamed. And we find out that the name of the character. Is the name of her older brother. And it's like holy crap. And this is coming at the climax of the film. Where she's like desperately trying to like save her father. Because there's like air, an airstrike coming. And like. Her father is still trapped in this prison, and so she needs to, like, rescue him. And there's, like, this tension of whether, like, she can do that. What are like, this guy who is helping her, who she has befriended, who is, like, a part of the Taliban and who knows about her secret. But, you know, he befriended her throughout the story, and so now he's, like, risking his life to help save her father. And, like, he gets confronted by, like, this... Bad guy who like pulls a knife on him trying to stop him. So like this, this whole stress about like whether, you know, Sherfado can be rescued and like, or whether she'll lose another family member. And I really feel that distress and it's like, whoa. Yeah. So I thought this like was really interesting setting, a really powerful story. I think it was beautifully animated. And yeah, I just connected with it pretty well that, I think it even more so in retrospect than even after watching it, because I remember after watching it, I enjoyed it a lot, but I wasn't necessarily impressed by it. But the more I think about the story and Barvana's arc, and like how the film was depicting the culture, and you know how it was, how this oppresses women, but how also they were fighting against the system in their own ways, and also. You know, just this story of Parvana working through the grief of her brother and then her desperation to save her father. Like, that was really strong to me. So, yeah, I I really love The Breadwinner. It's on Netflix now, so you can go see it if you have Netflix, and I would highly recommend it. Because Cartoon Saloon, they do fantastic work. Their films are always fantastic. The last film that Nora Twomey... Did for Cartoon Saloon was Secret of Kells, which of course was another really incredible film. This might be stronger. I, it's hard for me to call. I have to see Secret of Kells again, but yeah, this was a real treat to watch, and it, it really stuck with me. And I've thought about it a lot.
1: Yeah, it's also funny because I actually like Brother Winter more than Coco. It was probably among the films nominated for Best Animated Film. It's probably my second favorite behind. A loving Vincent. Overall, yeah, I I really like Breadwinner as well. And I, I definitely agree with what all you said. It's not in my top six. There are only two animated films in my top six. And that's very interesting because all of my top six are animated films. It just shows to
0: show you what I value. Um, <laughs> but let's find out what else beat out the Breadwinner in your list, V-Lord. Let's go to your number five.
1: Yeah, so my number five is the Shape of Water. Aha Yeah, so I think we covered a lot why we like this film and I guess just reiterate, uh for one, Del Toro's directing is fantastic, the music is great, visually it's just a real treat, it's visually stunning. The main the main actress Does an amazing job as being this mute character and really conveying the emotion. Um, the CG of the monster is really cool. And I just, I just feel overall it's, it just is a great encapsulation of what Del Toro is capable of. And you gotta love that satisfying
0: criticism of masculinity mask as American values represented by a white man who has power over a group of minorities who fight back against the system. (laughs) It's pretty great. I love it. Yeah. And uh, The Shape of Water is your first Del Toro, if I'm not correct. You haven't seen any of his other films. I saw Pacific Rim. Oh, right. So it's this. And Hellboy. Oh, okay. So you have seen other films. Of his, But you haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth, which is probably the most similar to The Shape of Walk.
1: Yeah, I haven't seen, like, a lot. I haven't seen really his experimental films. <laughs> most of my experience with him is, like, his over-the-top action.
0: I mean, I need to see all of his films as well. There's more in his filmography that I haven't got around to yet. And I hope to, eventually. But, yeah... Shape of Water, right now, it would stand up as my second favorite of his films behind Pan's Labyrinth. And they are very similar movies in terms of some of their messages. Although I think Pan's Labyrinth has a little bit more, and it's a little bit more powerful, considering it's quite more tragic. But that's not a slight against The Shape of Water at all, because I, I think that is a film that deserved a happy ending for the kind of story it was telling, and I'm glad it had one, because it would have been a real bummer if it didn't. It worked for Pan's Labyrinth to have a bummer ending. Shape of Water, I'm glad it had the happy ending. But we'll go on to my number five now, which was a film I recently saw, actually, at the International Children's Festival in New York, NYICFF, and that film is... The Big Bad Fox and Other Stories. This was a French animated anthology film directed by Benjamin Renner, who previously did Ernest and Celestine, which is another fantastic movie. And it was adapted from Renner's own books, specifically The Big Bad Fox and... Uh, what was the title again? It's a French title. It was A Bebe a Livreur. I think that's like... A Baby... Delivering a Baby? Yeah. Wait, what is it? The title is Un bébé a livreur. And like the plot of the film is delivering a baby, so I think the title is delivering a baby. Yeah. So yeah, so this is an anthology film. It's framed around the fact that these characters are performing a play. And so we have like these intercellers where the characters are like, you know, setting up the stage and like trying to, you know, uh get the next story set up, which is a really cool, like, framing device for, uh, tying all these stories together. But all these stories actually feature a recurring cast of characters and are set in the same location. So it's kind of like a really nice throwback to a film like The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, which is also an anthology film featuring the same characters, just different stories sequenced together. And so there are three stories in this film. The first was Delivering a Baby, where the main trio, I would say, of this film, like the main characters of both the first and last uh, short in this film, are the pig, the rabbit, and the duck. And so, the rabbit and duck are totally incompetent and irresponsible goofballs. So, when this stork lands on this farm, and says he's broken this wing and doesn't want to deliver this baby because he has broken his wing the rabbit and the duck decide to deliver the baby instead and the pig freaks out because like he's afraid the they'll get the him killed and so he goes along and tries to you know help deliver this baby and then uh in the second story in the big bad fox uh it's about a fox who conspires with this wolf to kidnap three baby chickens and raise them and fatten them up so he can eat them, but he comes to love them as they see him as their mother, and he starts to think of them as his children. So eventually he, um, you know, saves them from the wolf, and then he becomes their family. And then the final story, which is about Christmas, uh, the rabbit and the duck think they've killed Santa Claus when it was just like a, a rubber Santa, so they decide to... Become Santa Claus to cover it up. <laughs> and so the pig gets, of course, dragged along and they end up, you know, being trapped in this dog pound. And so in order to avoid getting eaten, they have to like trick the, the daughter of the boss dog in the dog pound that they are like the real Santa and his companions and then escape the dog pound and then team up with them to gather presents and then deliver them. And then eventually it's. Reveal that there is a real Santa. And then they, you know, end up helping him. So they do end up technically saving save Chris Christmas. And then uh, everyone has a nice Christmas. And so what I just really liked about this film is that even though from what the surface, the plot of these stories isn't necessarily very surprising. Like, they are very... Tip, story. They are similar kinds of stories to what you might have uh, seen before in other places. But the execution is everything. Like, the aesthetic style of this film is really beautiful. The animation is incredible. There's insane slapstick moments. Great exaggeration. Like, I love watching the animation in this film. And it is incredibly funny. It's consistently funny. This is the most I have heard anyone in a theater laugh at a film. Adults and kids alike were laughing all throughout this movie. Because there are just so many really smart jokes, so many well-timed jokes, and it's just an incredible treat. And I absolutely fell in love with these characters really quickly, and I wanted to see an entire series about them. That's how good the film really was. It made me want to see more of it. You know, despite being a 90-minute film, I wanted to see more stories with these guys. I wanted to see a series about them. So, you know, I kind of hope Niner does end up doing that, because I would definitely watch it. And the framing device of the play is just really fun and it's really way, good way to connect it all. And that leads to some great gags too. Overall, I as someone who just loves seeing like really interesting animation and interesting ways of telling, you know, maybe familiar stories and making them feel fresh and still incredibly funny and exciting. Like this was an incredibly well-made film that like I enjoyed start to finish and I definitely left like wanting more of because it was so good. So I I I really really decided to I really really connected with it in that sense and so that's why it's so high up on my list. Even you know, I've seen over 50 movies this year and so this being in number 5 just goes to show like how much I enjoyed it and how readily I would rewatch it again and how much I would want to see more stories featuring these characters. So yeah, definitely I would recommend it to pretty much any animation fan, especially if you loved Ernest and Celestine. This also has a great, you know, similar strengths as that film. And G-Kids is the distributor of it, and I think they will release it on home video later this year. I don't know if it will get a theatrical release. Funny enough, one of the mutters who attended this screening, you know, brought her children along. You know, she was talking with some like, the attendants outside the theater and was saying, you know, you should totally show this film around Christmas time. This would be a perfect Christmas time movie. And, you know, I don't know if G-Kids would distribute this film in theaters. They usually go for more how-you-say... Art house or an, Art house films or anime films. It's either one of the- mean, other. On,
1: on their website, they did put in like the coming soon section for theaters, but it could just be like Bird Boy, where they're just showing it at like a film festival and that's it. Yeah, and
0: they've already shown it at this film festival, so.
1: Yeah, so maybe, uh, I'm not expecting a wider release for this. I would like to see it. I mean, I do think this could be a successful
0: film if it was given a wider release because it is so good and it is so family friendly
1: uh, yeah I, I definitely agree I'm interested. In any case, I'll definitely be picking it up when it comes out. Yeah, I'm interested in seeing how the dub turns out because the
0: French performances are just so good, especially the guy who plays the wolf. The roles are defined by like how good the voice actors are in so many of the cases, especially when it comes to the wolf and the dog. That it's gonna be interesting to see if the dub for this film lives up to it, because like those performances are a huge part of like what sells the comedy too. I think. But yeah, mm. my number five is the Big Bad Fox and Utter Tales. Definitely check it out when it is available on home video. But what's your number four, we Lord? We're on our number fours now.
1: Yeah, my number four is Logan. Oh-ho! So like I was mentioning before when we were talking about the Oscars, I felt like Logan was the definitive Wolverine movie. It was just an just a perfect cap. To Wolverine's really journey as a character and like, just like a great end point for Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart's careers as a Wolverine and Charles Xavier. Hmm. So yeah, I, I just like really loved it. Like it really, it really felt different than what, what you'd usually expect going into a superhero film. Like, like I feel like modern superhero films is very much kind of about having like These cool spices of action, a little bit of comedy, and then, like, this fun, happy ending, or kind of a bittersweet ending or something. While this film really kind of feels like a very powerful film, like, at times you really kind of feel like it's not like your average superhero film, just because it really is treating it a lot differently. When, Mm. I feel, given the story that they wanted to tell, it was the best course of action, because... They really were taking these, like, identifiable heroes and really showing them a light that has been shown before in, I feel, animated series and comics, but to your average live-action film goer, they haven't seen this kind of side of Wolverine before, and I felt that was really interesting.
0: Yeah, Logan was a pretty incredible film. It was a really satisfying send-off for Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart. Great closure for, you know, the X-Men universe. At least that timeline of it. Yeah, I mean, that was a really powerful film. It was like a really unique film because it's a kind of story that we just normally just didn't see from superhero films. And how bleak it was. Like, the film was just so bleak, and it felt so raw, the violence. Like, it's not unusual for a superhero film to be violent, but in Logan, the violence felt raw. It felt awful and unsettling, and, and scary.
1: The action didn't feel like it was being glorified. More, it felt like a legitimate struggle, something that really was damaging to both sides, like that
0: is just such a good point because when we think of Wolverine, we think of how badass he is that he can like slice up people into bloody shreds. But in this film, that is painful. That looks devastating and hurt and just awful for for both the victim and for Logan himself because it is painful for both of them. And it's like, this violence isn't glorified. It isn't cool. It is soul draining.
1: Yeah, and I remember when they first announced that uh, they were going to change the rating of the film to R that people were going to be like, oh, they're just going to make it super edgy and violent just for the sake of it. But no, they, they had a legitimate reason for doing it because what, what they did is that Yes, it's a violent film, but it's violent for with legitimate purpose to it.
0: Yeah, the violence that was purposeful. Like, this this was a film that needed to be an R because it needed to show that level of violence in such a raw and brutal way. So, Sid, what's your number four? <laughs> My number four is Mary and the Witch's Flower. This is Studio Panox Big theatrical debut. This is a studio that was formed out of a lot of ex-Ghibli stuff, and it shows the director previously did... When Marnie was there. When Marnie was there. And, Secret
1: World of Already.
0: Yeah, both films that I really enjoyed. And this film definitely feels a lot like a Ghibli film in many respects. But I think that it does make a lot of steps to show that it has its own identity and own interests. It definitely shows that, you know, a lot of the staff was very inspired by the work they did on Ghibli films, but that they can also move into their own direction and they, you know, have their own interests and ideas in mind. And this film is really kind of about that in its own way. Like, it is kind of maybe on a meta level about kind of finding your own identity and not basing it off of, like, what somebody else perceives you as. And I think that's a pretty cool meta aspect to the story. It's kind of very similar to, you know, the whole meta aspect of Little Witch Academia being, like, an offshoot of Gainax and, like, Trigger finding its own voice and what it has to say about that. So Mary the Witch's Flower is kind of the... Equivalent for Studio Ponoc and its relationship with Ghibli. But what I really loved most about marrying the Witch's Flower was just that it was like a pure, kind of unadulterated uh, magical experience. Magic is such like a common device in films and TV and stories in general, though. These days that for someone who has seen it in so many stories, like it's really hard for the idea of magic to feel fresh and new and truly feel like magical. But I feel that Mary and the Witch's Flower really did succeed in that because I was amazed by the things that we saw Mary do in the film, like some of the creatures, like the experiments, the world of the film. I think it really communicated that sense of magic really well, and it immersed me in this world. It definitely felt like a magical kind of film, a fantastical fantasy, and I really appreciated it for that, that it could, you know, draw upon very familiar elements for sure, but it still felt refreshing in how it used those elements and the story it crafted, and I was captivated by it. I really, really enjoyed it. And I am looking forward to seeing where Studio Ponoc goes from here.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I agree with what you said. I mean, I I like *Mary and the Witch's Flower* a lot as well. Like, I feel like I I have mixed feelings about like its narrative, but I feel as a first work from Studio Ponoc, it is very good, very strong. It really shows that they they still have their own stories to tell. They aren't bounded to the legacies of Takahata and Miyazaki. They have their own individuality as artists, as creators, and they are trying to push that forward with this new studio. Yeah, I mean, I personally did enjoy the story a lot, and I particularly
0: liked all the characters. I thought they were all quite a hoot, especially the madam and the professor guy. They were great villains. But, yeah, I think that this was just a strong directorial... Work for Yonabeyasa. You know, he's made great films, and he's this is another great feature for him. And as Ponox first feature, it shows a lot of promise for the studio. It's not going to be the next Ghibli. There is no next Ghibli, and there is no next Miyazaki. Stop having those discussions. I hate that. We should be telling Studio Ghibli themselves that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I hate that the discourse around this film is about, oh, is Ponak gonna be the next Ghibli, or is Yonabayasu gonna be the next
1: Miyazaki? We don't need a next Ghibli. Look at look at the internal conflict within Ghibli over the past decade, and you'll realize that you don't want another Ghibli. We don't need another Ghibli. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's important to people just because Ghibli is
0: one of the only anime studios that has international prestige and recognition. Hayao Miyazaki is the only anime director that has international prestige as a filmmaker. But there is no next Miyazaki. There's only the next someone else who earns that level of prestige that Miyazaki has earned. And they will be their own unique talent. But let's yeah. not talk about things in terms of who is the next Miyazaki or Ghibli, because there's no next of those. There's only who is the new talent to keep an eye on. And that's I my agree. thoughts on that.
1: But what is your number three, Lord? So my number three is uh Get Out. Mm-hmm. Get Out, like, from the moment I watched it, I just, like, fell in love with it. It was just such a fun film, but also a really exciting horror thriller. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing coming from Jordan Peele because Jordan Peele always associated so much with comedy, but he really can build this kind of strange tension in the film. And I think part of that is it kind of mixes this dark comedy in with what it's doing with its overall tone of like the brainwashing and like brain transfers of white people into black people. Um, but like, it just does this great job of you know, having these comedy moments, but also being a part of a larger narrative that is legitimately kind of thrilling and even exciting at times when it gets a little bit action-y. And you're, at, by the end, when the main character finally makes it out of like the hellhole that is that town, you have this just elation of satisfaction, just like, Hell yeah! He made it out. He he's okay. And you just kind of really think about how fun of a ride it was, and that's why I love this film. Yeah, I agree with everything you said.
0: I think that again, it was one of the most effective horror films I've seen in a while because it's sprouted in something so real, and it also has a sense of humor that like makes it have like kind of two sides as a horror film because there's. That dichotomy of like, oh, this is like a ridiculous situation, and oh, this is a scary situation. And I like that sense of humor and that dichotomy in that film. Really good. So Sid, what's your number three? My number three is a film directed by someone who has also been discussed pretty frequently in the context of, oh, is he going to be the next Miyazaki? Which I, of course, do not care for. But this is, like, one of the most talented animators working today. This is a animator that has made much waves already this year for directing a show. You, you might have heard of it. Devilman Baby? Yeah, I'm talking about... A film by Masaki Yuasa, and the film that is my number three is called Blue Over the Wall. This is one of two films that Yuasa directed last year. The other one being The
1: Night Is Short, Walk on Girl.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the title. Yeah. So this was one of the two films that Yuasa directed last year, which is pretty insane that he could direct. Two films last year, in addition to directing Devilman Crybaby, I don't know how he managed it, that that man is an insane workaholic, but my god, Lou Over the Wall is just a joy to watch to start to finish. It is a musical experience for one, music is a heavy theme in the movie, and there's some really fun dance sequences, but... What's really incredible is of course the animation and the visual aesthetic which is absolutely beautiful and expressive and super cartoony and weird and oh my gosh it is a tour de force for the eyes and you might have heard some Ponyo comparisons to this film and those are pretty accurate because (laughs) Lou is pretty
1: much Ponyo. And, I uh, mean, he's in the water like Ponyo, she. so therefore... She, okay, yeah. She's in the water like Ponyo, so therefore she's Ponyo. I mean, her relationship to the main character of, uh, of Lu or of the Wall
0: is kind of similar to Ponyo's relationship with Sosuke, no denying that. And also, Lu's dad is like... Clearly inspired by Totoro. He is basically Totoro in his mannerisms and his design and actions. It's like, wow. I think this Yuasa deliberately tackling Ghibli iconography and ideas and reworking them into his own film with his own, like, interests with uh, Lu over the wall. And that's kind of interesting to think about if, like, he was intentionally trying to kind of comment or like play around with Ghibli ideas so that'd be interesting and another aspect of that is its environmental message so hey (laughs) another evidence to its worth's favor but yeah so it's just like a really fun film that like has incredible animation it's just super lovable super funny I just loved watching it it's just so funny and it's Oh my god! I have rewatched a clip of like Lou dancing on the beach and like all the other characters like being hit because what Lou can do is like she can like when she starts dancing she can hypnotize other people into like dancing alongside her. So she hypnotizes like a bunch of these other people on the beach dance to, to dance alongside her, and it's like just an entire crowd of people all dancing. It's like insane. animated that much And there's like Such expressive animation too It's just so fun to watch And there are multiple scenes In the movie like that Where there are like Multiple people dancing All at once And there are also Just insane animation scenes Like that scene Where Lou's dad Like Bursts out of like The underground And like uh, Lou and her, the merfolk like burn up in sunlight, but he's like racing throughout the streets to like get to Lou and he's like burning up and like the, how raw he's animated as he's like racing through the street as fast as he can and he's like literally on fire. He's burning up and like he barges into like the, Arena where Lou is being kept in, in like at this jail cell and like to, to like come and save her. It's like, whoa, this is like so raw. This is like so freaking cool, man. Oh my god, Yuasa is just so awesome. The, the animation. It makes me so happy. It makes me so jazzed up about animation. This is like probably the most child friendly of Yuasa's works too, aside from his Episode he did for Adventure Time. So, that's another great factor in his favor. You can uh, get your kids and uh younger siblings hooked on Yuasa. So, hey. That, I'm really happy that this movie exists for that reason, too. But, man. The sheer amount of joy that I had watching this film. On opening night. on At the New York International Children's Film Festival. Was... Pretty unparalleled by most other things that I saw this year. Except for my number two, I think. Well, no. Even more than my number two. Even though, like, my number two even makes me even more happy. But we'll get to that eventually. But, yeah. So, oh, the the wall. It's so good. And, yeah. You should watch it. If you're a Yuasa fan, I know you are already going to watch it. And, trust me, it is a treat. And if you loved Ponyo... Lure on the Wall is Ponyo, but with the craziness and cuteness cranked up to
1: 11. Nay, 100. <laughs> so,
0: yes, definitely check it out. Amazing stuff. And so, okay, what is your I number
1: two, We Lord? My number two is Blade Runner 2049. Hey, hey! Yeah, so, I, I know a lot of people were like, I guess, wary about Blade Runner 2049 going into it because it was by a new director, not Ridley Scott, even though Ridley Scott hasn't made anything good in ages. But, like, I, I was really impressed by Blade Runner 2049, especially, like, just the sheer contrast it has with the first film, where the original Blade Runner is very much about the themes and the more of the visual stun of everything, while 2049 really shifts more focus towards a character-driven narrative that is still fueled by the themes. But it's not the sole focus, which is really interesting, just because like you can really start feeling for the main character K and kind of his the identity crisis that he feels throughout the film and to the end of the film when he eventually meets Decker and everything. And it's it's really just such a interesting I'd say take on it, like just his relationship. With his, like, digital companion and him, like, really, like, struggling against, I guess, the rising tides of, like, a uh, society and really, like, the, the idea of, uh, replicants being kind of slaves. And yeah, I, I just really liked this film and it really impressed me. And just like, it's one of those films that despite being so long, nothing Feels like it's extraneous. Every scene feels like it has impact. And it's just so
0: good. Yeah, I agree with everything that you said. I think that Blade Runner 2049 takes the ideas of the original Blade Runner and takes them up to the next level. I think that the original cinematography and aesthetic was more impressive to me, but in terms of narrative and in the development of its themes, 2049 blows it out of the water and has really interesting characters, really interesting exploration of characters and ideas from the previous film, and how it explores Deckard and the idea that he and that replicant woman from the previous film had a child together, what that means, and Kay's arc of like really desperately wanting to believe that he is human because he feels these emotions, and then his devastation that he's not in fact human, but then his dedication to protecting who the real, the real child of rep, of the replicants and, uh, human Deckard. I guess we don't really know if Deckard is actually a human or if he is also still a replicant. They still give that vague. But regardless, you know, the big idea, the idea is like the replicants can have children. So that means that they are human. So he's out to protect this this evidence that they are in fact human. And he sacrifices his life to do it. Basically the antagonist he fights up against is a very kind of subservient replicant who is like kind of like fighting for the system. Just kind of out of blind obedience. So that's also a very interesting like contrast. And like kind of makes it for a pretty like desperate and like really hard to watch confrontation as they're like fighting in that drowning ship and Kay is trying to rescue Deckard and bring him to safety while fighting off like this incredibly strong and dangerous woman who is like just out to do her job and kill anyone who gets in her way so I am hoping for another follow-up because there are definitely ideas left uh, untouched that they could build upon in a sequel But uh, it didn't do that well at the box office. But I think that time is going to treat this film really well. Uh, I mean, it's already critically acclaimed. And I just think it's just going to grow more of a reputation. So maybe one day we can get another follow-up. But even if we don't...
1: Yeah, I feel it's going to be like the original Blade Runner. Where over time it's going to make a lot of money. It's going to really be well remembered. Which I I feel overall is the most important thing. That... The lasting memory of the film, rather than just direct kind of boost in sales. I agree.
0: But yeah, Blade Runner 2049 was like one of the most thought-provoking and intelligent films from last year. And yeah, it was definitely one of the best movies of last year. It's very cool to see that as number two on your list, even though it uh, didn't make my list. But V-Lord... On that note of smart and thoughtful films, do you remember what my uh, uh, let's let's talk let's talk about uh, what my criteria is for my favorite films of the year? They aren't necessarily the best films or the smartest films or even like the most well-made films. They're the films like I enjoy the most and make me the most happy, and I want to watch again and again and again. The Lord, do you remember what my number two favorite film of 2016 was? I honestly don't.
1: Girls on Panzer? Yes. What do you think my number two favorite film of 2017 was? Was there a new Girls on Panzer film? No. Well,
0: not one that got got released in the States, at least. Shit. Um. It's similar in that vein. It is a franchise film that is nothing but, like, action upon action, but it's such a joy to watch. These characters do these awesome things and I would watch it again and again and I did see this film twice because I enjoyed it so much. It's not the most thoughtful film. It's not even the most well made film, but it is a film that I enjoyed so much. I wanted to see it again and I will continue to see it again and again as many times as I can once I get like the eventual home video release. And that film is Magical Girl Lyrical Nanaha Reflection, baby! Yeah, so I had no experience with Nanaha prior to a few days before seeing Reflection in theaters. But I watched the first two Nanaha films and I fell in love with these characters and this franchise. And Nanaha Reflection just continued to be everything I loved about it. I love Nanaha and Fate's relationship. And Fate continues to be the best character. She has, of course, the best art in this film, where she, you know, starts to be comfortable calling Mindy her mother. And it's so good. And it's, oh, so heartwarming. And then Hayate, you know, she's... she. I thought she was not that interesting in the uh, second film. I mean, I think the characters around her were interesting. But she becomes pretty cool in reflection. And, uh, you know, Nana continues to be pretty awesome. All the characters get to be awesome in this movie. Like, Nana has such a large cast of characters, but they all have a moment where they, like, really shine. The new characters are pretty cool. I like both Kyrie and Amita. And, like, Kyrie has, like, this cool motivation. Not nearly as, like, complex as uh, the Vulcan Ritter or a uh, fate's mutter, but still pretty, you know, strong and grounded in something that you can really connect with. And uh, you know, the action scenes are just so good. Like it is just some of the most awesome stuff that makes me so happy to watch. And uh, I like I just I just enjoy it so much. It's just like Girls and Pants with the film V Lord. It's just you know, it's, it's not a film with a whole lot of this substance necessarily. But it is the film. I saw in 2017 with the most entertainment value, and I give credit to where credit is due. I love *Nana Reflection*. I watched it twice in theaters. I'm going to buy the DVD, and I am uh, going to look forward to like *Detonation* when it comes out next year. Pretty great stuff. I also wrote a review on uh, *Nana Reflection*, so if you want my more expanded. Thoughts on this film and its strengths and weaknesses, which it does have weaknesses, and I go into that in my review. I'll link that in the description. But, uh, yeah, I love Nanoha Reflection a lot.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I like Nanoha Reflection a lot as well. I mean, I guess, like, I felt it was kind of the weakest of the Oh, don't get me wrong, I agree, but
0: yeah, I still enjoyed it so much.
1: Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. that. That film is just a ton of fun to watch. So, should we uh, talk about number one? Yeah, our number ones are the same. And do you want to just say it at the same time? Uh, Okay, should we count out? Yeah. Three, two, two, one. one. The Boss Baby!
0: It's Loving Vincent, of course. Obviously, folks. As if my impassioned pleas to make you go see the movie when we're discussing best anime feature was not evidence enough. Yes, Loving Vincent was our favorite movie of 2017. It was the most mind-blowing to me in terms of being an artistic accomplishment. It was a really compelling narrative exploring all the myths and historical inaccuracies about... Vincent Van Gogh's suicide and what it meant and how it happened. It was a really fascinating story told in a really incredible way. A great tribute to the works of Vincent Van Gogh. Again, every frame of this film is hand painted, traditionally painted on canvases, and they are all, all the all the backgrounds, all the imagery in this movie is inspired by actual paintings of Van Gogh. Everything from the characters to the backgrounds. It is. A huge celebration of the work of one of the greatest painters who ever lived. It is an artistic masterpiece, an accomplishment of animation, unparalleled by anything else this year. It was a labor of love that took the filmmakers over seven years to make, and it paid off in just an incredible, incredible experience of a film that, yeah, I want more people to see because it pains me that so many people I've heard talk about the best films of the year have not seen this film, and that is a crime, because you need to go see this film. If you love good cinema, if you Love good animation. You owe yourself to see loving Vincent. And you might not connect with it as emotionally or be as blown away by it as me, sure. But I think you will walk away from it saying, wow, that was something I have never seen been attempted before. That was a real feat of artistry and cinema. And I can totally respect that and totally see why Mr. Lam Ramayasha is so passionate about this film being the best film he saw in 2017. Do you agree, V-Lord?
1: I mean, yeah, I, I definitely agree. <laughs> like, it wouldn't be my number one otherwise. I think we we've went on lengths about why this film is a masterpiece. And I don't even know how much more I have to say about it, like. Like, it, it really is just that fantastic of a film. Like, we, it may seem like we're overhyping it, but no, it, it's, it's amazing. Okay,
0: yeah, so, if it's on, uh, is, is it on home video yet? Is it on video on the man? It is.
1: Yeah, I, I was actually thinking of buying the Blu-ray, cause it's it not even that expensive. The buy the Blu-ray!
0: Buy the Blu-ray! Why haven't you bought it yet? You, that should have been an instant decision
1: for you. I got distracted by Takashi Mike's films coming out. But
0: yeah, that, those are our favorite films of 2017. We're both unanimously agreed that Loving Vincent is the best and everything else is grubs, it's trash, but I guess the other stuff in our top six was pretty decent. They're not, not as decent as Loving Vincent, but still pretty good. They're still better than all the trash that weren't in our top sixes.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I know like, Boss Baby is such a high tier (laughs) legacy film, but I I don't, I think we're just not worthy enough to watch it.
0: Oh, clearly. Uh, Clearly Boss Baby is too intellectually stimulating for our feeble minds. I mean, they they said cookies are for closers. (laughs) I, I think we're just closers. What does that mean? v-lord i I, I can't even fathom such an incredibly
1: profound statement i mean it's so deep on so many levels like the cookies the little (laughs) chocolate chips inside them closing the deal i mean what is the deal anyways I, i i just don't know it's, it's, it's way too complicated for my feeble mind. I think it'll blow up my brain if we talk
0: about the boss baby anymore. It's just too beyond yeah.
1: us. Maybe we need to end this, end this recording. Yeah, we, we need to
0: close this podcast. We need to, we need to have baked some cookies and close it off. Unfortunately, <laughs> we do not have cookies, so we'll try our best to do it without those. So. GTZ, I'm glad you stuck with me for over three hours to talk about the
1: Oscars and our favorite films. Yeah, I, I really need some pizza. In fact, I'm ordering pizza right now.
0: <laughs> yeah, I should probably get something to eat because I actually am going to be seeing a film in an hour
1: myself. Yeah, I'm seeing another, I'm seeing a movie in like two hours. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's, it's just like at midnight. Yep. So,
0: I guess we'll leave it off at that. I don't know, I might split this up into two parts just so that the Oscar one gets out on time, but we'll see. But in any case, thank you for joining us for another Manga Mavericks at Movies.
1: Relord, where can the good people find you? People can find me on Twitter at VLORDGTZ, that is V-L-O-R-D-G-T-Z. I'm usually on there talking about whatever I'm up to, anime or game or manga-wise. Usually it's about manga I'm collecting or reading, and how I'm progressively drowning in more manga, and falling into the dark abyss of manga collecting hell. And yeah, that's pretty fun to watch from what I hear. So so yeah, you, you should uh, ch- check me out on Twitter. I, I, I'm cool. Please, please like me. We need therapy to cure a manga
0: collecting addiction. It's, it's a problem. Where, where did the manga reading touch you?
1: On the fingers and the eyes. The text kept touching
0: them. My fingers kept touching its pages. And, and the, some of the pages were lewd. They were naked boobies
1: on them. And Ranga went half. So the pages, like, uh, were were kind of a bit tattered because they're used. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know where I was going with that. But yeah.
0: Alright, and you can find me as Lomrame Yasha at Lomrame Yasha on Twitter, my anime list, Animation Revelation. Basically anywhere I am, you can find me under the name Lom Ramayasha. In fact, if you wanna see more of my thoughts on movies, you can check out my Letterboxd, where I'm pretty active nowadays since I've been seeing so many movies that I, you know, need to keep track of them. So yeah, I'm on Letterboxd and I actually do make a list of all the films that I've seen in a particular year and rank them. So hey, you can get an early sneak peek of what I might think of a film during the course of a year as I continue to watch them. But if you want to follow the show, you can follow us on Twitter at Manga underscore Mavericks On Tumblr at MangaMavericks Tumblr.com and on Our iTunes at Manga Mavericks and on our YouTube channel Um YouTube slash C Slash Manga Mavericks or just search for The Manga Mavericks channel it'll be the first Thing that comes up and we're gonna try And be more active on there we've had a little bit Of a hiatus but we want to grow The channel so please watch Our content on there like our Stuff and subscribe to our YouTube Channel as well as our iTunes feeds because that helps the show grow and continue to find more audiences and also rate and review us on iTunes that definitely helps us too or if you just want to send us some feedback you can tweet at us at our Twitter handle or you can leave a comment on allcomic.com, or you could go to the Animation Revelation Manga Mavericks tread and comment in there, or you can send us an email to Manga Mavericks at gmail.com. We love hearing your guys' feedback and your suggestions and what your favorite films of 2017 might have happened to be, or what films you want to see us cover in the future on Manga Maverickside movies or what you're looking forward to most about film in 2018 Uh, We're always interested in hearing your guys' thoughts and feedback and and, uh, having a conversation with our audience. So definitely reach out to us and send us some feedback whenever you feel inclined to. But I think about about does it for the show. This has been another episode of Manga Mavericks at Movies, talking about our personal favorite films of 2017. And we will see you next time. Sayonara. Later.